Thank you, Phil. Thank you, children, for coming up and participating. Parents, please be diligent in catechizing your children. Um, you, know, you know those little gospel tracts um, that kind of give the basics of, of the Christian faith or of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The catechism is kind of like that. It's not so brief, uh, but I, I've actually had this thought. Maybe it would be good for us, instead of handing out these little two-page things, you know, uh, to just start handing out copies of the catechism. Do you want the gospel? Well, here it is. Uh, and I want to remind you, parents, that that is what the catechism essentially does. It does more than that, but it, it presents the gospel, and we can use it with our children in this way. It shows us our sin and how Christ is the solution to it. Um, brothers and sisters, I'm going to devote one more sermon after this one to the book of Revelation. Uh, <laughs> I wonder how irritated you guys get with me. I mean, what's the rush? I, really, I have three reasons, and I'll mention them in order from most important and serious to least. One, I'm finding that the conclusion to the book of Revelation is very rich. Uh, what I thought could be covered in one or two sermons, I, I found to need three. Uh, two, I've thought to myself, this may be the only time that I preach through Revelation as a pastor, who knows? And this might be the only time that the saints at Emmaus hear a series on the book of Revelation, so we might as well take our time and just finish well. And then three, uh, notice that if we devote one more sermon to the book of Revelation, then that will make 66 sermons in this series. I thought this would be appropriate given the symbolic nature of the, book, uh, of, of, of the numbers, the symbolic nature of numbers in the book of Revelation, uh, and given that the key to understanding the symbolism of this book is to consider it in light of the rest of Scripture, and as you know, there are how many books in the Bible? 66. And so there being 66 sermons in the series seemed appropriate to me. Of course, I say this last point with tongue-in-cheek. Um, but anyways, I, I found it interesting. And so it will, it will be 66 sermons through the book of Revelation. Uh, let's take our time and enjoy the conclusion here and glean from it what we need to. Uh, let us give ourselves now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, clear, and authoritative word. Revelation 22, we'll read verses 8 through 12. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon, Christ says. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, Christ says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. As I said last week, the conclusion to the book of Revelation consists of a series of five exhortations or encouragements to live holy in response to what we have encountered in this book. Uh, The first is found in verses 6 through 7, the second in verses 8 through 10, the third in 11 through 12, the fourth in 13 through 17, and the fifth in 18 through 20. Uh, We considered the first exhortation to holy living last week, and it can be summed up by the words of Christ found in verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the book of Revelation is to be kept It was written to promote obedience to God and faithfulness in Christ Jesus to the end. And so, brothers and sisters, the question is, are you keeping the prophecies of this book? Are you living according to the truths that have been revealed to us here in this book? All of this was considered in much more detail in the previous sermon. And if I were to sum up the second exhortation to holy living found in the conclusion, it would be with the words, Worship God alone. We are to worship God alone. The book of Revelation reveals what it reveals in order to promote the true and right worship of God alone. We could state the same principle negatively by saying that the book of Revelation from beginning to end is concerned to combat idolatry. Idolatry is is the worship of created things as opposed to the creator of of all things. And idolatry is a problem not only for the unbelieving, but also for those who have faith in Christ. Even true Christians are tempted to commit idolatry. We are prone to bow down to things that are not God. Sometimes we may be tempted to literally bow, but oftentimes we are tempted to bow to idols of the heart and of the mind. We are prone to love created things supremely, Instead of God, who is the creator of all things, we are prone to trust in created things. We're prone to hope in created things, to make created things our source of contentment and joy in this life. This, brothers and sisters, is the sin of idolatry, and the scriptures forbid it. The first of the Ten Commandments is this, you shall have no other gods before me. This does not mean you shall have no other gods above me as if it is okay to have gods below him. Uh, But no, instead, it means that we shall have no other gods at all. No other gods should be set up by us in front of God or before his face. This is the meaning of the word before in the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment is this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Uh, This is what men and women are constantly prone to do. We are prone to worship, that is to attribute ultimate worth, to created things, when in fact only God, the creator of all things, 
is to be worshipped. The trouble with idolatry is twofold. One, the idols that we erect for ourselves, whether they be physical and visible or invisible and in the heart, they cannot deliver. You, you trust in them. You set your hope upon them. You expect them to bring you lasting joy and contentment. But they cannot deliver on these things. No created thing is worthy of our worship. No created thing, neither angels, nor men, nor things crafted of wood and stone, is worthy of worship, for they are not God, and they are incapable of meeting our deepest needs and expectations, brothers and sisters. You heap up expectations upon these idols of yours, but they quickly crumble under the pressure. And if you thought much about this, you would say, I have found this to be true. For there have been times in my life, you would say, where I have set hope upon some created thing only to find that it disappoints. It cannot deliver on what it promises. When you bow down before that statue and pray to it, you expect to hear an answer, but it does not hear you. It cannot see you, and even if it could, it does not have any strength in it to help you in your time of need. It is a deaf thing. It is a mute thing. It is an impotent thing. It is not the Creator, but it is a part of creation, and it is not worthy to be worshipped. Now, brothers and sisters, I doubt that many of you are struggling with idolatry of this kind, that is, the actual carving of and bowing down before an image. Some do struggle with this sin even today. But I know that you are struggling with idolatry of another kind, that is, idolatry of the heart. I am certain of it. And so how easy it is for us to look to created things and to worship them in the heart and mind. I think your natural impulse will be to deny that you do this, but I would really urge you and plead with you to think more deeply on this subject. Men and women the world over worship things like health and prosperity and their possessions. Men and women worship government. They put their hope in it and despair when it's not as they think that it should be. Men and women worship angels. They worship even dead relatives when they pray to them and expect them to answer. We are prone to worship even friends and family. We're prone to worship our spouses and our children. We're prone even to worship the church or to some religious leader within it. We attribute to them undue and inappropriate worth. And so how easy it is for us, brothers and sisters, to love these things supremely. How easy it is for us to begin to hope and to trust in these things ultimately. And we therefore pile expectations upon these created things. We expect them to come through for us then, but they soon crumble under the pressure for they are not God. They are not able to deliver. They are not worthy of worship. Only God is to be worshipped. Idolatry of the heart can be a very tricky thing. It's very easy to, to justify it or to explain it away, saying, but aren't these things important? Aren't they a blessing from God and to be enjoyed? Shouldn't I invest in my health and seek to build wealth and to prosper? Shouldn't we be involved in our government given that God has instituted it for the common good? And isn't it right that we honor the dead and are not angels real, ministering spirits created by God? And what should we say of our friends and family, our spouses and children? Don't the scriptures command us to love these people fervently and from the heart? 
And should we not also love the church and honor those who minister within it? Do you see how we can easily justify idolatry within our hearts? Brothers and sisters, all of this is true. And you know very well that what has just been described is not idolatry. For it is right that these created things be given their proper place. But you also know how quickly these created things can turn into idols of the heart. Uh, They turn into idols when you make them central and supreme. They turn into idols when you set them up on the throne of your heart. They turn to idols when they become the things that you trust in, hope in, and find ultimate satisfaction in, and therefore you begin to serve them. They become central and supreme. And I belabor the point, brothers and sisters, because I've grown convinced that idolatry is a real problem for the people of God even today. It is something that tempts us all And if present within the heart of the Christian, it is a very destructive thing. Idolatry will consume the one who who professes faith in Christ if it goes unchecked. One question that you should ask yourself is, is the principle of idolatry in the heart even biblical? That the scriptures forbid bowing down to a physical idol is very clear. I don't think anyone would ever debate that. But some might object, saying it goes too far to say that idolatry is a sin that can be committed only in the heart. I think many scripture texts in the Old Testament and New could be be appealed to to prove that there are idols of the heart. Uh, Listen, for example, to the way that Paul speaks in Ephesians 5.5. Listen carefully to how he speaks concerning this issue. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul equates the sin of covetousness with the sin of idolatry. Did you hear it in the reading of that text? He says that one who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Um, Covetousness is a sin only of the heart. You do not covet externally. You covet external things, but it is a sin that you commit in the heart. It involves looking at what another person has and wanting it for yourself. Covetousness can lead to external sins. Theft. We steal when we want what someone else has and we take it for ourselves. It can lead to theft. It can lead to adultery even. It can lead to lies and to murder, but it is a sin of the heart. And Paul calls it idolatry. He says, this is idolatry. To covet is to look at a created thing and to say in the heart, I must have it. To covet is to look at a created thing that is a person, a possession or a position. And to say in the heart, if only I had that thing, then I would be truly satisfied. Paul says, this is a form of idolatry. You cannot see the idolatrous act. It is invisible, but it resides invisible within the heart. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says something similar. So notice he's exhorted the Ephesian church in this way, but he's also exhorting the Colossians in this way, the church in Colossae. Uh, So evidently he saw it as a real problem for Christians even in his day. And here is how he exhorts them. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And so there we have it again. Covetousness, according to Paul, 
is idolatry. And this is what I'm urging you to do. The very thing that Paul was urging the church in Colossae to do. To identify the idols of your heart and to put them to death. You're to pick them up, metaphorically speaking, and you're to throw them to the ground and you're to dash them to pieces. You're to throw them to the ground and then you are to worship God alone. He is to reside supreme within your heart. May you love Him supremely. May you place all of your hope in Him. May you trust in Him alone and give Him the glory that He alone deserves. If your impulse is to say, this does not apply to me, then I would urge you to think more deeply about these things. Why do I say that this text is concerned to promote the worship of God and to warn against idolatry here in Revelation 22? I want for you to notice what happens in verses 8 through 10. John the Apostle, who is the one who heard and saw these things, when he heard and saw them, what did he do, brothers and sisters? He fell down and he began to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to him. But the angel said something to him. He rebuked him, saying, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Do not do that. You must not do that, John. You must worship God alone. This event should actually sound very familiar to you, for it is the second time that it has happened in the book of Revelation, back in 1910. We read the words of John, Then I fell down at his feet, that is the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19.10. So twice John stumbled in regard to the sin of idolatry. He, be, he, being overwhelmed with the glory of the angel and the splendor of the vision that was delivered to him, fell down to worship the angel. And twice John was rebuked with the words, you must not do that. What does the angel essentially say? I, I'm, I'm just a part of creation. John, I'm not the creator. I'm a part of creation. And I, like you, am a servant of God. I, like you, am a servant of God. I am not worthy to be worshipped. Never should we bow down to worship angels or men or anything in all creation but God alone. And so I would ask you this question, why do you suppose that the book of Revelation concludes not with one but with two instances of John himself slipping into the sin of idolatry? Why do you think the book of Revelation concludes in this way? Is it not to show how easy it is even for the godly to stumble in this regard? We are prone to it, brothers and sisters. If John himself, the apostle of Christ, to whom this was all originally revealed, if he himself was so prone to slip into idolatry, is the message not this? You're going to be prone to it as well, and you're to be on guard. You're to be very careful in this regard, to never bow down or to worship anything, either physically and externally or in the heart. That is not God, but you're to worship God alone. Remember, brothers and sisters, that idolatry was warned against consistently in the letters to the seven churches found at the very beginning of this book. I'm not going to give you instances here or read passages for the sake of time. Go back and read them and see that it was clearly a problem in those seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was originally addressed. They were struggling with idolatry. That God alone is worthy of worship was shown in the visions of chapters 4 and following. 
Also, that the things of this world, though seductive on the surface, are not worthy of our worship was shown in these visions in chapters 4 and following. But here at the conclusion of the book of Revelation, we are reminded that the sin of idolatry is always before us. It is always there tempting. And how easy it is for us to stumble here and to bow, either literally or in the heart, before things that are not God as if they were God. Brothers and sisters, we must take care to worship God alone. The greatest remedy, I think, to the sin of idolatry is to simply remain active in the worship of the one true God. Yes, I think it is very good for us to examine our hearts and to ask the question, is there an idol there? Is my heart covetous? Etc. And if the answer be yes, then we should throw that idol down. But even more fundamental is this, let us remain active in the worship of the one true God. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to worship Him. And he does also prescribe how he is to be worshipped. We, we should not break the Lord's Day Sabbath ever, unless we're very ill or something like that. And even that is not a breaking of the Lord's Day Sabbath, but it's a legitimate reason to not be here on the Lord's Day. Let us not break the Lord's Day Sabbath. We're not to neglect the, the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's Day. That passage in Hebrews is always on my mind. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. I don't know why Christians ignore that or why they think what it means is we should not do it very often. You know, No, it, it, it just means don't neglect this. Come instead and worship God. We should not neglect the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's Day. We should come to worship God. We should come to pray to Him. We should come to hear His Word. We should come to feast upon Christ in the Supper. But we should come with our hearts prepared and full of faith. There is no greater protection against the sin of idolatry than this, the active and proper worship of the one true God, the creator of all things. Worship God alone. The third exhortation to holy living in this conclusion is found in verses 11 through 12, which says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And so the third exhortation to holy living can be summarized with these words, let the righteous continue to be righteous. Here in these verses, those who have been made righteous are commanded to do right, and those who have been made holy are commanded to be holy. Really, there is nothing difficult to understand about this. Uh, The difficult part of this passage, the difficult part to understand, is found in the command, and for that is what we have here, their commands. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Doesn't it sound a little strange to your ears to hear the Lord command something like this? Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Uh, The key to understanding the meaning of this verse, is to recognize that it is connected to the passage in Daniel chapter 12, which in fact stands behind much of what is said in this conclusion of the book of Revelation. Daniel 12 contains prophecies concerning the end of time, and it says, among other things, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, 
And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The last days are described uh, to Daniel as a time where the wicked will act wickedly and not understand, whereas others will wash themselves and will be refined. And so the description of the last days that we find in Daniel is now picked up in the book of Revelation and is turned into a command to indicate that the, the days described in Daniel 12 have come to be. They have come to pass. These are the last days. And by these, I mean all of the days between Christ's first and second comings. This is the way that the scriptures speak of the last days. And the book of Revelation is saying, let it be so as it was prophesied in Daniel. These verses that we have just read are not anti-evangelistic, as if they meant, do not call the unrighteous and wicked to repentance. That cannot be what they mean, for that would contradict the rest of Scripture, not to mention other portions of the book of Revelation, including statements in the immediate context. Indeed, the church is to evangelize. Indeed, the gospel is to be preached to the unrighteous. And they are to be urged to repent and to turn to God and to have faith in Christ. The elect of God will repent in due time as the Spirit of God works. And so these verses are not anti-evangelistic. Instead, they reinforce what was said in Daniel concerning the last days. In the last days, there will be wicked who will not listen to God's word. And there will also be the righteous who do hear and who wash themselves in the blood of the Lamb. The presence of the wicked and the unrighteous does not mean that God's purposes are being thwarted, though. But He is sovereign still, and He is accomplishing His purposes. Even in this world where there are the wicked who stubbornly refuse to turn to God, and there are the righteous whom God has called to Himself through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We should not be frustrated by this. We should be concerned about the fact that the wicked do wicked. We should preach the gospel to them, but it should not bother us in the sense of us being given to despair as if things were outside of God's control, as if he were somehow losing the battle, if he somehow was frustrated in heaven, his, his purposes being uh, thwarted and, and frustrated by sinful man. Really, it's not at all unfrequent for me to have conversations with Christians outside of this church. Um, I run into them in, in many different places, as do you. Uh, all around town and at different events. And it's interesting how often the conversation goes to the current state of the world when they find out that I'm a pastor. It just, it's the thing that comes up. I don't direct the conversation there, but they do. Oh, you're a pastor. And then they begin to say things like, wow, the world is becoming such a crazy place, isn't it? Or can you believe how sinful the world is? And how I respond to those remarks usually depends upon the setting and how much I want to invest into that particular conversation, how much energy I have, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but I'm always thinking the same thing, which is, why in the world do you seem surprised, Christian? Why is it that when you say this to me and I look into your eyes, you, you, you look shocked at the, the state of the world? Also, I tend to think to myself, no, the world is not becoming crazy and sinful. It's always been this way. Perhaps there is an increase of it. That is possible. But, but my goodness, study history a little bit and you wouldn't say these things anymore. You'd see that Christians have struggled greatly living in the midst of a sinful world since the time of Christ and even since the days of Adam, uh, using the term Christian um, anachronistically there. 
But I, I look at their eyes and I say, why are you surprised? And even more concerning to me is when I see fear there in their eyes. When I see that they are worried, when I see that they are deeply troubled, as if you know, they think, they truly believe that everything is spinning out of control. The scriptures are filled with, 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 with these truths, that though the wicked be wicked, God is on his throne. His purposes are never being thwarted. He is bringing everything about to his desired end. God is at work. Though the wicked will be wicked, there are righteous who are to be righteous. And God is establishing his kingdom. He will bring it to a conclusion. Brothers and sisters, I want for you to have confidence as Christians living in this world. Yes, you should be troubled by the sin that we see in it. Yes, it should bother you. It should prompt you to pray, and it should prompt you to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone around you that you have opportunity to speak to. But I do not ever want to see you troubled deeply, especially to the point of fear, that shows me that you have not truly received and believed the things revealed in God's word, that shows me that you need to grow in faith. I do pray that the book of Revelation has helped us in this regard, that we not be timid Christians, not fearful Christians, but that we be confident Christians, those who overcome and conquer and persevere in Christ to the end, knowing that our Lord is risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Our God reigns supreme, and He is bringing about His purposes even now in our lives individually, but even more importantly, on a grand scale, He is building His church. His kingdom will come. It will be consummated at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, this is how things have been since Christ's first coming and even before. He himself warned that things would be this way. His apostles also warned warned of it. This is why Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in this way. Listen to Paul's words to Pastor Timothy. But understand this, he says, in these last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he says this to Timothy, avoid such people. And so when Paul told Timothy that this is how things will be in the last days, did you hear that phrase? This is how things will be in the last days. He was not speaking of some time in the distant future from Timothy's perspective, but rather he was saying to Pastor Timothy, Timothy, do not be surprised when people are like this now. For Timothy and Paul were living in the last days, as are we. These are the last days, not meaning that there are only a few left, but these are the last days and that this is the last epoch in redemptive history. The only thing remaining is the return of Christ and all things being made new. And so Timothy is warned here by Paul, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the godlessness that exists around you, but know that this is the way it will be. God is in control. He is accomplishing His purposes even despite the wickedness that we see in the world. Let the evildoer still do evil, and let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Brothers and sisters, the question that we must ask ourselves here is, have you been made righteous through faith in Christ? 
Have you been made righteous? Have your sins been washed away? Have you been justified? Indeed, if you have faith in Christ, you have. And what the text here is calling us to do is, if you have been made righteous by the blood of Christ, then be righteous, live right before God. Have you been made holy, we might ask? And then, do not presume upon the grace of God. Do not abuse it. Do not say to yourself, my salvation is by the grace of God alone, received by faith alone, and is not dependent upon my works. Therefore, my sin does not matter. That is an evil way of thinking. Instead, we are to see God has made me righteous, having washed me in the blood of Christ. He has made me holy. Positionally, I am right before Him. Now, I'm going to live my life right. I'm going to pursue holiness, being regenerated already by the blood, uh, by the Spirit of God, and being washed by the blood of Christ. If your attitude is this, My sin does not matter because my salvation is free and is not dependent upon my works. If your attitude is this, that my sin does not matter, then it either shows that you are very immature in Christ or that you have not been regenerated by the Spirit at all. Instead, we should expect the Christian to say, because I have been declared righteous by the blood of Christ through faith in Him, I will now do that which is right, and because I have been made holy, having been washed in the blood of Christ through faith in Him, I will pursue holiness with all that is in me, being empowered always by the grace of God. If this is the attitude of your heart, then it is evidence that you are maturing in Christ, and that the Spirit of God has indeed regenerated you, having renewed your mind, your will, and your heart to make you able and willing to keep God's will. Amen? Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, Christ says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. As I said in the previous sermon, there is no problem at all with the words of Christ when he says, Behold, I am coming soon. It is true that this book was written over 1900 years ago, and if taken to mean I am coming in a short amount of time, then I suppose that there is a problem uh, with the text here. Uh, But the thing being communicated here is that the return of Christ is near. It is the next thing that will happen in the history of God's redemptive activities. When He comes, He will come suddenly and like a thief in the night. And so no, there's not going to be a distinguishable seven-year tribulation or a thousand-year millennium that comes prior to the return of Christ the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. Instead, these things that have been shown to us in the book of Revelation are next. They are the next thing that is going to happen. And in that sense, they are near to us. Uh, This remark from Christ, Behold, I am coming soon, is to be understood in contrast to the words spoken to Daniel, the prophet, in Daniel 12, which indicated that from his perspective, the end of time was a long way off. Do you remember this? Daniel, all of these things have been revealed to you, but seal it up, put it away. It's not soon. Go your way, Daniel. You're going, to, you're going to go into the grave, and many will be wicked, and some will be made righteous. But these things that have been revealed to you concerning the time of the very end, they're, they're a long way off, Daniel, from your perspective. But here at the end of the book of Revelation, the, the exact opposite thing is communicated. John, remember, um, saw the breaking of seals, didn't he, in this book? What was sealed in Daniel is unsealed. The seals are broken in the book of Revelation. At the conclusion of it, the the emphasis over and over again is, this is what's next. This is what's coming soon. 
Uh, when Christ returns, He is going to return suddenly. The atonement has been accomplished. Um, we are in the last days, and Christ is going to come quickly. When Christ comes, He will bring His recompense with Him to repay each one for what He has done. Uh, no, this is not teaching that Christians will be saved at the end of time by their works. That would contradict the whole of Scripture. And also that which has just been revealed in Revelation, that at the end of time, humanity will be di divided into two groups, those whose names were written in the book of life before the creation of the world, and those whose names were not found in that book. And those not found in the book of life will be judged by what they had done, that is, by their deeds. Here we have a reminder of this fact. Christ will judge those not in Christ by what they have done, that is, by their works, and none will stand. The Christian will not endure this kind of judgment, but instead the one in Christ will be received based upon Christ's works done on our behalf and received by faith alone. Of course, this does not take away the obligation for the Christian to live holy, though. The Christian is to live holy because he has been made holy. The Christian is to live right before God because she has been made right by Him through faith in Christ. In the end, it is true that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so if this is you, if you are these things that have just been mentioned then you ought not to expect to inherit the kingdom of God, but you ought to expect God's judgment at the end of time. But that is not to say that you inherit the kingdom of God by not being these things. Do you see the distinction here? No, you inherit the kingdom of God by grace alone, through faith alone. And when God saves a sinner by His grace through faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit, what does He do? But He changes them so that they are no longer these things just mentioned. They are no longer sexually immoral. They are no longer idolaters. They are no longer adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers. The Christian may struggle with these sins but he or she will not remain in them so as to be identified by them. Do you understand? The Christian cannot be these things. God will not leave them there. The Christian may struggle with these sins, but he or she will not remain in them so as to be identified by them. This is what Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians. He says this, And such were some of you. You used to be these things. You used to live this way, so much so that you were identified by these sins, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 This is what God does when He saves a sinner. He transforms them to the core. He washes them. He sanctifies them. He changes them so that they are no longer these things. I think we have trouble in, in, the, in the Christian church today um, there are some who are legalistic. In fact, they do end up teaching that 
you will be saved at the end of time based upon your works. It is a distortion of the gospel. But there are also others who so emphasize salvation by the grace of God alone and free grace uh, that they end up neglecting the calling of men and women to holiness. You see, our holiness does matter to God. Our right living does matter to God. We just must be sure to get it right that we neither fall into the ditch on this side of the road or that. Yes, we are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith in Christ alone. We add not a thing to our salvation. It is all God and none of us. But what should we expect, brothers and sisters? Having been made righteous, having been made holy, let us go on then to live right before God and to pursue holiness, having been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit to the very core of our being. To the very core of our being. Brothers and sisters, I'm glad that we're taking our time in this conclusion to the book of Revelation. I think it is important for us to hear these exhortations to holiness. It is very good that you understand the book of Revelation. I hope that you understand it. Maybe you didn't understand it before. And it is good to know good and sound doctrine. That that is also very important. But please do not stop there. Please do not stop there. I think some of us are very proud of being Reformed, you know. Um, We like the Reformed tradition. We love Reformed doctrine. I do. It's wonderful. Um, To be truly Reformed, though, brothers and sisters, involves piety. It involves holy living. Don't forget that. If you're puffed up with pride and arrogance because you have good doctrine, shame on you. Instead, our sound doctrine should produce humility within us, and it should prompt us to live holy before our Lord. Remember that we are to worship God alone. We're to obey Him. We're to pursue righteousness and holiness. Remember that you are the bride of Christ, and He is sanctifying you now, washing you with the water of the Word, so that He might present you to Himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Indeed, that is the aim of our ministry here, to proclaim Christ to warn everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians 1.28. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, do help us to worship you alone. Give us the wisdom to discern where we have idols in our heart. Lord, this can be difficult, but help us to reflect deeply upon your word Help us to hold it up before our faces and to inspect ourselves. Holy Spirit, do convict us of our sin, Lord. Show us the idols that exist within our heart and show us the destructiveness that they have upon our lives and help us to cast them down and to have you as God alone. And Father, also help us in regard to holy living. May we, having been made right and having been made holy, then pursue righteousness and holiness in our lives. Lord, help us to apply your word always, Lord. Help us to be wise in this way, to not only believe these things in the mind, but to receive them in the heart and to live according to them. Lord, we trust that we will be most blessed as we do this and that you will be most glorified through us, Lord. And so do what we pray for the glory of your name. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we say these things and all of God's people say, Amen.